now how she did this. I don't think I was even aware of it at the time. Because halfway through our first kiss, my first kiss, I can remember feeling utterly bewildered, totally unable to explain how Alison Ashworth and I had become so intimate. I wasn't even sure how I'd ended up on her side of the park, away from her brother and Mark Godfrey and the rest, nor how we had separated from her crowd, nor why she tipped her face towards me so that I knew I was supposed to put my mouth on hers. The whole episode defies any rational explanation. But all these things happened, and they happened again, most of them, the following evening, and the evening after that. So what was the significance of the snog? The truth is that there was no significance. We were just lost in the dark. One part imitation. People I had seen kissing by 1972. James Bond, Simon Templer, Napoleon Solo, Barbara Windsor and Sid James. Or maybe Jim Dale. Elsie Tanner, Omar Sharif and Julie Christie. Elvis. And lots of black and white people my mum wanted to watch although that they never waggled their heads from side to side, to one part hormonal slavery, to one part peer group pressure. Kevin Bannister and Elizabeth Barnes had been at it for a couple of weeks, to one part blind panic. There was no consciousness, no desire and no pleasure beyond an unfamiliar and moderately pleasant warmth in the gut. We were little animals, which is not to imply that by the end of the week we were tearing our tank tops off. Just that, metaphorically speaking, we had begun to sniff each other's bottoms and we did not find the odour entirely repellent. But listen, Laura. On the fourth night of our relationship, I turned up in the park and Alison was sitting on the bench with her arm around Kevin Bannister, with Elizabeth Barnes nowhere in sight. Nobody, not Alison or Kevin or me or the sexually uninitiated retards hanging off the end of the swing boat said anything at all. I stung and I blushed, and I suddenly forgot how to walk without being aware of every single part of my body. And that was that. Where had I gone wrong? First night, park, fag, snog. Second night, ditto. Third night, ditto. Fourth night, chucked. Okay, okay, maybe I should have seen the signs. Maybe I was asking for it. Round about that second ditto, I should have spotted that we were in a rut, that I had allowed things to fester to the extent that she was on the lookout for someone else. But she could have tried to tell me. She could at least have given me another couple of days to put things right. My relationship with Alison Ashworth had lasted six hours, so I could hardly claim that I'd got used to having her around, that I didn't know what to do with myself. In fact, I can hardly recall anything about her at all now. But there still seems to be an element of that evening in everything that has happened to me since. All my other romantic stories seem to be a scrambled version of that first one. 2. Penny Hardwick, 1973 Penny Hardwick was a nice girl. And nowadays I'm all for nice girls. Although then... I wasn't so sure. She had a nice mum and dad and a nice house, detached with a garden and a tree and a fish pond and a nice girl's haircut. She was blonde 
and kept her hair a sort of sporty, clean, wholesome form captain mid-length, and nice smiling eyes, and a nice younger sister who smiled politely when I rang the doorbell and kept out of the way when we wanted her to. She had nice manners. My mum loved her. And she always got nice school reports. Penny was nice looking. And her top five recording artists were Carly Simon, Carol King, James Taylor, Cat Stevens and Elton John. Lots of people liked her. She was so nice, in fact, that she wouldn't let me put my hand underneath or even on top of her bra. And so I was finished with her, although obviously I didn't tell her why. She cried, and I hated her for it, because she made me feel bad. I can imagine what sort of person Penny Hardwick became. A nice person. I know that she went to college, did well, and landed at a job as a radio producer for the BBC. I would guess that she is bright and serious-minded, perhaps too much so sometimes, and ambitious, but not in a way that makes you want to vomit. She was a version of all these things when we went out. And at another stage in my life, I would have found all these virtues attractive. Then, however, I wasn't interested in qualities, just breasts. And she was therefore no good to me. We went to the pictures, to parties and to discos, and we wrestled. We wrestled in her bedroom, and my bedroom, and her living room, and my living room, and in bedrooms at parties, and in living rooms at parties, and in the summer we wrestled on various plots of grass. We were wrestling over the same old issue. Sometimes I got so bored of trying to touch her breasts that I would try to touch between her legs, a gesture that had a sort of self-parodying wit about it. It was like trying to borrow a fiver, getting turned down, and asking to borrow fifty quid instead. These were the questions boys asked other boys at my school, a school that contained only boys. Are you getting any? Does she let you have any? How much does she let you have? And so on. Sometimes the questions were derisory and expected the answer, No, you're not getting anything, are you? You haven't even had a bit of tit, have you? Girls, meanwhile, had to be content with the passive voice. Penny used the expression, broken into. I don't want to be broken into yet, she would explain patiently, and maybe a little sadly. She seemed to understand that one day, but not now, she would have to give in, and when it happened, she wouldn't like it. When she removed my hand from her chest for the one hundred thousandth time, Attack and defence, invasion and repulsion. It was as if breasts were little pieces of property that had been unlawfully annexed by the opposite sex. They were rightfully ours, and we wanted them back. In any case, after a couple of months of fighting on sofas all over town with Penny, I'd had enough. I had admitted, unwisely in retrospect, to a friend that I wasn't getting anywhere, and my friend had told some other friends, and I was the butt of a number of cruel and unpleasant jokes. I gave Penny one last try, in my bedroom, while my mum and dad were at the town hall, watching a local dramatic society interpretation of Toad of Toad Hall. I used a degree of force that would have outraged and terrified an adult female, but got nowhere. And when I walked her home, we hardly spoke. 
I was off-hand with her the next time we went out, and when she went to kiss me at the end of the evening, I shrugged her off. What's the point? I asked her. It never goes anywhere. The time after that, she asked me whether I still wanted to see her, and I looked the other way. We had been going out for three months, which was as near to a permanent relationship as you could get in the fourth year. Her mum and dad had even met my mum and dad. They liked each other. She cried then, and I loathed her for making me feel guilty and for making me finish with her. I went out with a girl called Kim, who I knew for a fact had already been invaded and who I was correct in assuming wouldn't object to being invaded again. Penny went out with Chris Thompson from my class, a boy who had had more girlfriends than all the rest of us put together. I was out of my depth, and so was she. One morning, maybe three weeks after my last grapple with Penny, Thompson came roaring into our form room. Oi, Fleming, you spastic. Guess who I knobbed last night? I felt the room spin round. You never got so much as a bit of tit in three months, and I shagged her the first week. I believed him. Everyone knew that he got whatever he wanted from whomever he saw. I had been humiliated, beaten, outperformed. I felt stupid and small and much, much younger than this unpleasant, oversized, big-mouthed moron. But I still couldn't understand what had happened. How had this transformation in Penny been affected? How had Penny gone from being a girl who wouldn't do anything to a girl who would do everything there was to do. Maybe it was best not to think about it too hard. I don't want to feel sorry for anybody else except me. 3. Jackie Allen, 1975